So really excited to come back to our studies. Um, and the last time that we were meeting, we were talking about God's will and decision making. Well, we didn't quite finish the content, so we're returning to, to the topic of God's will and decision making. And uh, I wanted to spend some time talking about call to ministry or call to missions. And I thought I could have done that last time that we met when we talked about marriage. And, but it's so many questions to be answered that I thought, you know, I think this will be helpful for us just to have a discussion. Um, because, you know, I think there, there are some uh, teenagers here, um, people that might be questioning, is God calling me to this? Or even for us adults, um, is, that, is that the call for everyone? And um, I believe that ministry, you know, God has called everyone to certain ministries. Um, so, with no more delays, let's start um, with a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we come before you with thankfulness in our hearts um, for your faithfulness, for your care over us. Lord, and for all the things that you have left in your word to instruct us, to help us to make wise decisions. Lord, and as we have been reflecting this past few weeks, um, that you didn't leave us wandering what you expect of us. You don't leave us with this vague, uh, difficult decision to make. You give us clear directives on what, to steps, what steps to follow, and you give us freedom uh, to choose what we want to do within um, your revealed will within um, the borders of your word, of your written word, the scriptures. Father, I pray that you would help us even as we discuss these things, that we might be able to articulate um, some of our questions and, and, and to be able to answer to anyone who asks us. And this is, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I remember growing up, there was just a, a great deal of confusion um, on that area of, of calling. You know, does God has a call for me. And I, I think I shared with you before that um, in my home church, we were very missions-driven. And we had a lot of, you know, missionary. We had two missionary uh, conferences every year where we would have the missionaries in our church coming and visiting and giving their reports. Uh, we would pray and, and you know, uh, raise a, a commitment of faith, support for the missionaries. So I, I was very blessed to, to have that background, but at the same time, I think there was just so much uh, pressure and, and even confusion because I, we would listen to those stories of missionaries on how they felt called, and it, some of them was you know, very mystical. Um, the majority of them weren't, and, you know, that was comforting to us. Um, but they were doing God's work, right? So how then we see clarity for those that are called into the pastoral ministry? So a lot of what we're going to see here, they kind of overlap the call to missions and a call to ministry. Um, 
And so um, I gave you some directives there. I know that in the previous discussion, I was referring a lot to the phrasing book uh, on God's will and decision making. That one, um, I, I don't know. I, I think he had a lot of clear uh, objective instruction but he almost uh, totally removed the subjective um, part that, that really ha- it plays a part in ministry. Um, and so there is a book that is required for um, the missionaries at Grace Church in California to read by uh, David Doran. Uh, it's called For the Sake of His Name. And so most of the stuff that I got is from that book that I think it covers pretty much all the basis for uh, some of these questions, all right? So first question there and in your notes. I don't know if you still got it there. Um, someone will be passing along in a little bit. Dylan, thank you. Um, how can we know if someone is called to ministry? There are a few points there. The first one is God's call is grounded in a biblical command, not in feeling. So um, my, my thesis here is that God has called the whole church to ministry. And, and there is a biblical command to the whole church to do ministry. Um, you know, the first one is Matthew 28, um, verse 28 and 30, is that the Great Commission. We're all called to evangelize. We're all called to make disciples. So that is a, it's not a matter of, oh, I don't feel or I don't have this, and God has commanded us to fulfill this call. The whole church is. If you'll recall, last summer, we went over the one another's. And in the one another's, we are instructed to admonish one another, to teach one another, to pray for one another. A lot of the activities that a pastor does, we are called to do that at a, at a lay level. And so ministry really, it is a call for the whole church, and it's a matter of obedience. Now, God has gifted some people with certain gifts, and, and that, that's what we're going to see here, um, to do that at a full-time basis, to do that as a, a career pursuit. So um, some of the parts of the book I, I just copy there for you so you can follow Sir, contrary to many people's view of ministry and missions, the primary motivation should not be our feelings of compassion for human needs. Compassion is a vital part of effective ministry and should stir our hearts into ministry, but we must build from a stronger foundation than feelings. God's people have been given a responsibility and have been given a command to carry out the Great Commission and the Ministry of Reconciliation to all believers. How about we open there, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. I know that the Great Commission is well familiar for most of us, <clears throat> but maybe not the 2 Corinthians passage here. God has entrusted, entrusted this ministry to really all, all the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So he has entrusted this to us, this ministry of reconciling man with God. He didn't send angels. He didn't send, um, he already had son, his own son. And now he has entrusted to us his disciples to go and do the same. 
And so conviction to obey God's command forms the bedrock of God's call because it exalts God to first place in our lives. <clears throat> and then David Dorian says here, the interest in missions is disobedience. We are commanded at, at, at very least to pray for it. In Matthew 9, 36, 38, Jesus teaches us, instructs us to pray for God sending um, people to, uh, to preach the gospel. Uh, we are encouraged to provide for the needs of those that do missions and to par- participate in sending missionaries. In Acts 13, gives the example of uh, the church in Antioch sending. So failure to obey God in these areas destroys the foundation upon which the call of missions is built. Anyone called to missions must base their resolve on these commands, not on fleeting emotions or on their own inconsistent ability to be compassionate. Now, this is the mission side that I kind of uh, talked about, but then there's, in the same token, uh, doing the work of ministry is expected of the church as a whole. God then, in his sovereignty, sets aside certain men to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So Ephesians 4.12 is talking about um, God calling men, you know, shepherds, pastors, uh, preachers, overseers, the same word, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, if they're equipping the saints, the church, for the work of ministry, who does the work of ministry? The church, the people. So the work of counseling, the work of teaching, the work of exhorting and admonishing one another and encouraging one another, praying for one another, all those things, really, it's, it's, a, it's a, a whole, the role of the whole church, doing the work of ministry. So that's, that is our basis. Now, we do know that some people, and that's what we're really talking about here, is that some people will be uh, called to, to do that in a more um, time-consuming, right, more devoted to that kind of ministry. So they would have a special call or a more specific call. And I say here, as in all decision-making, there is a subjective element. Uh, there is your personal preference to choose among God's given options. So God gives you options. You will recall from our previous um, uh, discussion that God gives you options within his will to choose in pursuing ministry. But God's objective truth should prevail then. And that's where First um, Timothy 3, 1, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do, but he must be above reproach. We're going to come back to that passage a little bit more, but it's just saying that though everyone is called, there is the personal preference. It's a matter of one choosing two. <clears throat> All right, point two. God's call is governed by godly dedication, not human ambition. But here, this little um, picture there, and the guy is saying, I can't stand to listen to anyone else preach. And he's talking to the pastor, and he says, you reckon that that means that the Lord is calling me to the ministry? It's a very... Very self-serving, right? <laughs> kind of, kind of call. You know, I can't. I, I'm just. I can't tolerate anyone else. Maybe I, I should be the one preaching. Uh, no, 
God's call is governed by godly dedication, not human ambition. So as in any career uh, for the believer, God's glory is the goal and driving force of ministry. Those who engage in it must be committed to, the tr- to that truth above all others. This is precisely why Paul expressed his driving focus in his life so clearly. And this is right on the passage that we just read about the ministry of reconciliation. It says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, and basically he's, this is a metaphor to say, either I'm dead or I'm alive, I'm making my ambition to be pleasing to him. So if our highest ambition is to be pleasing to him, then we will seek what he seeks. That's his glory. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you drink, whether you eat, do you all for the glory of God. And we will aim to please him, even if it means that others will not be pleased. Um, So if we are seeing things from God's perspective, uh, David Doran says here, it will change our value system and it will be reflected in our life prior, life's priority. Second Corinthians 4, 16, uh, 18 demonstrated that we will not live for things that are temp- temporal. Our lives will be controlled by things that are eternal. That matters. That matter when his life is over. In contrast, a life consumed with the pursuit of the world's pleasures and treasures will be death to the call of God to leave them in order to take the gospel to some far corner of the world. So, uh, this element of, of seeking the glory of God, it's, it's really pressing in the heart of the person that is being called to missions. It's not about self. It's not about making a name for themselves or becoming famous. It's all about the glory of God. Uh, Point three here, God's call is given through a settled conviction, not a special communication. Now, that is uh, a part that I think there is some confusion there. Because um, you would hear, you know, oh, God God called me. I just heard this voice in my heart. Um, Well, you know, everything that was revealed to us isn't in Scripture. Now, you can say it, it is not wrong for you to say, you know, I have a desire. I have a, a, a willingness to go to do missions. Or I have a willingness to be involved in full-time ministry. Uh, you can say that, and, and you know, depending on the other clues that we're going to see here, you can even affirm, yeah, I think that the Lord has set me apart for this ministry. But to say that you heard you know, God's voice. Well, I heard God from his word. <laughs> That's what you can say with certainty. So although the call is frequently described in terms of that um, sound like speech, calling, right? You're, that's like the charge that I put there. Does God only calls people? Does he text them <laughs> to tell them the culture ministry? Uh, no. Most conservative Christians do not really mean that we hear God's voice audibly or by means of a vision or a dream. Now, Acts 13, 1 to 4, it's Paul's Macedonian call. So he has this dream um, when he's in an island near Greece. And, you know, this is a major thing. God is calling him to a, a region of the world that has never 
heard the gospel. Uh, this is the beginning of the, the, the church. And God had to authenticate that these men are set apart in, in their ministry of apostleship, required, in, 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 but not all of them that got called had this special dream or revelation from God to prove that. So we see Paul Macedo- Paul's Macedonian call uh, in Acts 13. Then uh, 16, there's a send-off of Saul and Barnabas offer a valuable truth about the principle of God's calling, and he does it, but it should not be taken as providing a pattern for God's calling in how he does it. Clearly, the Macedonian call was a special revelation from God and should not be viewed as a normal pattern for believers today. And the call of Saul and Barnabas was probably mediated through revelation given by the Spirit to one of the prophets mentioned in that one verse. But there is clear evidence that God calls, that God works specifically to direct servants into ministry and missions. Now, how does God do that? So here's the, the, the way that God brings about this conviction and this directive and clarity. Acts 20 records a meeting between the Apostle Paul and the elders of the church in Ephesus. In verse 28, he provides insight into how these men became leaders in God's work. Um, he's giving instruction there. Be on guard for yourselves. Well, how about we open there and read it together? Let's go to um, Acts 20. Kind of interesting that the Lord in his providence, uh, this passage is going to come out later in the preaching. Um, 28, uh, Paul is giving instruction to the, um, elders, the elders in Ephesus. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So this, um, that this, the Holy Spirit has made them Overseer. So there is God's initiative in supplying that need for those working in ministry. Paul indicates that the Holy Spirit is, the instrumental, is instrumental in setting men apart for the work of ministry. The text does not indicate specifically how the Spirit made them such, but the implication is that they were manifestly men of whom the Holy Spirit had bestowed the requisite qualifications for the work. So my, um, this is a different commentator. Marshall goes on to, so far to say, such people owe their appointment to God's choice of them by the Spirit. So God's choice is mediated in connection with God's people. But to remove God from active involvement in the process is to ignore the force of this text. Um, the same truth is in Ephesians 4, 12. We already read verse 12. But verse 11 says, And he gave... He who, God, gave some as apostles, as some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the work of ministry. So God is the one that appoints. God is the one that brings about that call. We know from the verses that preceded that he, in verse 11, is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
The text says that the reason Christ gave men to the church to serve in ministry in capacities that would equip the church so that it could reach it, uh, its God-intended goal. 1 Corinthians 12, we're not going to go there, but it talks about the variety of gifts. It's a kind of a sister passage of this one. That there are diverse ministries allocated by the Spirit and the ability to exercise them. Here the gifts are the persons themselves. They're given by the ascended Christ to his people to enable them to function and develop as they should. Christ supplied the church with gifted ministers, people that have been set apart for him. So he enables and equips them. He gives them gifts, spiritual gifts, to do the work that he is setting them apart for. Just as in Acts 20, 28, the text does not tell us how the Lord does this. But there's no grounds for ignoring the fact that he clearly is the active person in providing these gifted men for, to do his work. All right. The other uh, thing is God sends the leaders into the work. God not only selects leaders for the church, he also sends them out of the church into the harvest to proclaim the gospel. Uh, we encourage to pray that the Lord will send harvesters. What is that implying? Who is the one sending? God. That's why we ought to pray that God would send them. And that some need to be sent to preach the gospel. Romans 10, 15, what, the, what does it say? That how will they listen if there is no one to preach? And how will they preach if they're not sent? So the sending really comes from the Lord. Now, and the la this last part here is the one that I want to take some time to discuss with you. God stirs leaders to do the work. And that's where the objective truth from God's word that, you know, he called everyone in the church to ministry, to do ministry, and then he calls certain people to a greater capacity of involvement in ministry. But then how does that work with our own preferences? How does that come into, oh, I desire to do this. I, I have a preference for this and not for that. God stirs leaders to do the work. That's where God's sovereignty comes together with that personal preference. So how then God gives the call to ministry or missions? If we rule out a special revelation, must we rule out the work of God in indefinitely direct, uh, definitely directing a person into missions or ministry? We should remember that God moves his people to accomplish his purposes. For example, one of the great motivations of the Christian life is the truth that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, Philippians 2.13 is speaking particularly of our sanctification. God puts this desire for us to grow, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He puts that desire and he equips us to do that work. Now, we know that the same principle is truth to anything in the Christian life, anything that we accomplish. If, even for someone to make a decision for Christ, where does that come from? Is that, oh, I, I, I just have my own will, I'm going to follow God. No, he puts that faith in us to, to trust him as our Savior. In the same way with our sanctification, in the same way with anything in the Christian life. This text instructs us that God's work 
in our lives produces both the desire and the action to will and to work. The transforming grace of God will affect the internal desires of a believer, will affect the, the internal desires of a believer, directing him toward his good pleasure, which is pleasing to him. Consider also Hebrews 13. Let's go Hebrews 13. Verse 13 and verses 20 and 21. The author of Hebrews in this benediction, he's saying that God is at work to equip us to do his will. Right? So even that will and that desire to work is there. He is the one behind it all. Um, Ephesians 2.10. Uh, we just saw that, that you know, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, so he, the good works that he prepared for us to work, he also will put us the desire to do them. Um, so God equips believers to do his will by energizing them to will and work for what he pleases him. Services is an outgrowth of God's inner working. So the same work happens in the lives of those that are called to pastoral ministry or to missions. For Timothy 3.1, that we have... Let's open our Bibles there because we're going to think a little bit on that passage. Timothy 3. That one that says it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires the office of overseers, overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. <clears throat> Crucial passage in pastoral ministry says that nothing directly about a call, but it, what it says about aspiring and desiring the office is equivalent of it. God places a desire for ministry into the heart of a man as a means of directing him into the work. So I actually added more than I had in your notes. This week I found a, not this week, last week, I found a, an article um, in the TMS uh, website. Steve Lawson was talking about Lloyd-Jones had six marks for those that are called to ministry. So I kind of picked some of these. Um, I do not agree with all the phraseology that Lloyd-Jones sometimes uses, and I want, I want you to interact with this a little bit. So uh, Lloyd-Jones affirmed that there must be an inner compulsion within the one call to preach the word. He stated there must be a consciousness within one's own spirit an awareness of a kind of pressure being brought to bear upon one's spirit. He identified this as an irresistible impulse, as some uh, disturbance in the realm of the spirit, and a new mind is directed to the whole question of preaching or teaching. This inner coercion becomes the most dominant force in their lives. Lloyd-Jones explained, this is something that happens to you, and God acting upon you by his spirit it is something that you become aware of rather than what you do. In other words, the drive to preach becomes a burden upon the heart that must be fulfilled. It is a holy preoccupation within the soul that causes the one called to step out in faith and embrace the work. This divine calling, Lloyd-Jones believed, grips the soul, governs the spirit. It becomes an overwhelming obsession that cannot be discarded. He will not go away or nor leave the man to himself. He explained that there becomes no way of escape. Such a strong force lays hold of the man that he is held captive. Now, I do think that he uses a very strong uh, uh, language 
on that. Um, and and I, I do believe that there is a, a strong desire. You know, a man desires what Paul is saying there. There, there is a desire. Uh, but it's not like, oh, I'm struggling. I don't want to do this. And I'm just kicking and screaming. I don't want to do, you know, God's really making me do it. I don't want to do it. No. It is something that I want to do it. I desire to do it. Uh, he explained that it becomes the way of escape. This is how the, he says it. Um, quoting him. You do your utmost to push back, to rid yourself of this disturbance in your spirit, which comes in these various ways. But you reach the point when you cannot do so any longer. It almost becomes an obsession. and so overwhelming that in the end you'll say, I can do nothing else, I cannot resist any longer. So Lloyd-Jones, that's the part where I, I, I really feel it, it, it's, it's, it's strange. You know, I, I can tell um, that there is an element that I, you know, when I decided to do ministry, I was a pharmacist. I was in pharmacy school, and I was involved in the church, and, you know, I just had pleasure. It was something that I enjoyed, that I was something that I was led to, that I was just, I wanted to do. I wasn't forced to. I wasn't, you know, it, it, it's not um, that you're going against your will. Again, if there is a desire, and if God is the one wanting you to be doing ministry, it is something that he will act in your will and you're to desire that. It is not contrary in kicking and screaming. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, and this is a part where I agree, also stated that the one called will experience a loving concern for others. I think that is the burden. God gives the one chosen to preach an overwhelming compassion for the people. As part of this divine choice, the Holy Spirit imparts a consuming desire for the spiritual welfare of others. Lloyd-Jones wrote, the true call always includes a concern about others, an interest in them, a realization of their lost state and condition, and a desire to do something about them, and to tell them the message, and to point them to the way of salvation. I think really this should be the, the heart and desire of all believers, to, to, to see people saved. But in particular, for those who are called to ministry, they have that burden heavy in their hearts. The salvation of people. The growth of believers. I want to see them growing. So this love for others includes the distinct realization that countless people are, are perishing without Christ. What is more than there is a concern that many of these lost souls are in the church? The one called to preach feels compelled to awaken them to their need for Christ. He's constrained to reach them with the saving message of the gospel. Now, this is the element here that I don't completely agree. I kind of touched on it already. Many of us probably heard this before. Ministry or missions is something that you do when you can't do anything else. That lack of not having what to do, you know, actually God calls a lot of successful people out of careers, um, my time in seminary, I would say the majority of the guys that, I, I, that were there, they had a different career before. I mean, you know, there was a newer generation of younger guys that never uh, did something else. But even, even, even so, I, I do recall, I mean, they had to pay for school. They had jobs, different jobs. 
some of them worked in, uh, I, I thought it was so interesting, like these guys are doing like a master's degree and they're working um, in a car wash um, to pay for school. Um, you know, so were they awful doing car wash? <laughs> or were they just, uh, obviously they knew that that wasn't their end goal, but they weren't bad employees. They weren't, you know, if, if you're faithful with the little, you will be faithful with the greater things. So I, that's the part where I, I disagree a little bit. I can see why um, Lawson and, and is quoting Lloyd-Jones in this sense, you know, of, you know, if you can't do anything else, this is the only thing you can do. I think is the heavy burden in your heart. I think that's where he's getting at here, that it, it, it doesn't compare to, I, okay, I'm going to give an example here. I remember when I graduated uh, from pharmacy and I was uh, in my home church, it's about the same time that I graduated from my leadership training in my church. And we, the end of the, the semester, we had to preach a sermon. And I remember the same week that I was preaching that sermon was the week that I was presenting my thesis at school to graduate from pharmacy school. And, you know, a lot of preparation for both of them was just like this. I enjoyed thoroughly presenting my thesis. It, it was fun. But when I was preaching, it, it was just different. You know, it, it's just this joy that I'm like, I'm speaking God's word that transformed lives. You know, and, and, and people are being transformed for his glory, not my own. It, it's just, um, you know, do I enjoy my time in doing pharmacy? Absolutely. Does that mean that I, you know, I had to hate that to, that's the part where I, I think that, I don't know, people push too hard on this. If, if there is anything else a man could do other than preach, he ought to do this. The pulpit is no place for him. It, it, it's kind of the element of trying to discourage people that are flakes. Does that make sense? Uh, people that don't stick to anything, I, I see you saying that. You know, they're just, they're just not doing anything. You, you want to discourage them. It's like, well, if you can't be faithful even in that, why would you want to be ministry? But I, I do think we should be careful um, to say, you know, if, oh, if you can be a lawyer, be a lawyer then. Because ministry is hard. Yes, it's hard. <laughs> but I, I, I hate when pastors do that. It's just, oh, it's just, if you can do anything else, do that. Because you're going to be hated. You're gonna, all those things are true. But I, I read First Timothy 3 and says here, it is a good desire. It is a good thing. You shouldn't make people to be thinking, oh, don't do that. It's a hard thing. It's, a, you know, my dad when <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, took a while for my dad to, to come around and think, oh, man, you're the only kid that went to college. And you're my doctor now, you know, because in, in Brazil they call pharmacists doctors, even though we don't have a doctor degree. Um, and, and for him, I was like, why would you want to be a pastor? People are going to talk in your back. You're going to, you know, love on them, and they're just going to turn your back on you. They're just going to hate on you. You're going to be poorly paid. 
it's just gonna be miserable. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Dad, you know, um, I I think God God doesn't call people for a miserable life. You know, and if you think about it, any profession, any any career, will have its difficult times. So. Um, I, what I'm trying to get at here is you, you read some of these comments out of context of what they're trying to get at, you know, the, trying to dissuade the flakiness, people that don't stick to anything, trying to build the ministry. I remember meeting guys in the seminary that I was like, Why, what are you doing here? <laughs> it was just, um, I, didn't, I didn't understand um, what they were doing there. Uh, so, well, I, I'm just doing this, you know, sure, you want to grow spiritually, you want to know scripture more, do that. Um, but this, this one guy was like, well, I'll, I'll figure it out. I, I just don't know. And sure enough, I think like one semester in seminary is hard. He, he just dropped. He was like, nah, I think I'll, I'll just do this different job here. I, you know, don't really have any leading. So. Anyways, moving on. Um, God expects us just the opposite attitude um, for those that serve in ministry. They do it because they, uh, they have to, but because they don't do it because they have to, but because God has placed in them a consuming desire to do so. Peter addressed his attitude quite clearly when he exhorted the elders to shepherd the flock of God who is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Ministerial labor is done with a spirit of voluntary surrender that eagerly pursues God's will. The picture of pastors and missionaries being dragged, kicking, and screaming to the, their place of service is contrary to the scripture and the work of God. I really appreciate this quote here. In addition to it, it is obvious that that desire alone is not enough to admit a man to the office of an overseer. That is clear from the list of qualifications, and that's where I wanted to read uh, the other things that Dylan was already touching on. Uh, there is this desire, but accompanied with this desire, there is a building up of the character of that man. An overseer there must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and, and fall into the combination incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And he gives on the qualification for deacons. Now, as we look at these character traits here, we see that this is not uh, anything ex exceptional. These are things expected from every believer, you know, from, from a believer to be honest in his financial dealings, to manage his own household, 
to have a good testimony from outside the church. This is expected from every believer, but for the ones that are set apart for that ministry of a pastor or of a missionary, they are to set the example for the rest of the church. They're supposed to be above reproach. So that's, that's the difference. This is expected from all of us, but yet the one that is up front should be the one that should be modeling that for the church so that there's no contradiction, you know, that someone can point. They're not perfect. Right? We, we, I think it's helpful for us to, to think this. They're above reproach. It doesn't mean that they're never reproachful. <laughs> um, there are some that are growing in certain areas, so we're all growing. Um, but the general picture of their life is a consistency in these areas. You might find every now and then, you know, a fault, but it, in the consistency of things, that's not what re represents their life. So the desire is followed by a qualification. Now the fourth point here says, God's call is confirmed by the believing community, not personal autonomy. So we talked about the subjective element, that desire. Now we're talking about now the community element, that the church plays an essential role in confirming or to, to identify even that call. God directed Saul and Barnabas into the work of missions within the context of the local church and through the ministry of the local church. The schools, he says here, and mission boards do not send out missionaries local churches do. The question, um, he goes on to say, the question of giftedness for the, the task of ministry and missions must be asked and answered within the local church, the uh, context of the local church. The gifts were given for ministry within the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed where? In the church. These different um, types of people, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And for the church, 12-7, but each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Whose common good? Common good of the church. Ordination is the process of recognition by the church of the gifts given by God to the candidate to ministry. So uh, verse 14 of First Timothy says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping, um, is it verse 14? No, chapter 4, 14. Paul, after he described the elements of, you know, the overseers and the deacons, and then he goes on to talk about the end of times that, you know, we'll have a lot of false teachers. And then chapter 4, verse 14, he says, uh, to Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying of hands by the presbytery. So that's the laying of hands of a person that is set apart. The church is recognizing that. Obviously, with Timothy, he had a prophecy. In our days, we don't have that, but we still have the recognition of the laying of hands, and that's the kind of, he's going to come back to it. We're going to come back to it in a little bit here. Um, so if a man is not able to teach um, and is not able to hold fast to the faithful word, um, 
to the faithful, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict, then that man is not qualified for leadership in the local church, whether at home or in a foreign field. And I just want to make a comment here. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, well, if, you know, someone, I heard a close friend actually say this, uh, the requirement for someone going to missions is not as much as someone um, being, being a pastor in a church. And I, I strongly disagree with that. When you think about Paul and Barnabas, they were the best teachers at Antioch Church. And, and they were sent. And now you send people for mission. I mean, I, I have seen in Brazil the American missionaries that came without <laughs> being prepared and equipped. You know, the, the, the error, the, the lack of just tactfulness to, to counsel people, or, you know, if, why would we expect them to be faithful in the local church here and not be faithful in the local church in a different country, in a foreign context? So, um, these gifts cannot be displayed and evaluated apart from the community of believers. I think, you know, it starts in the church. It is there that the ministry of the word centers, and from there that the ministers of the word are chosen and sent. You can find other qualifications in Titus and then in Peter, also to examine that. So Lloyd Jones is also helpful here. He's, he emphasized that outside the influence that will come to the one called the input and counsel of other believers become influential to the one destined for the ministry. It might be the feedback of a pastor or the affirmation of an elder. It could be the encouragement of another believer. They start seeing and noticing certain giftedness. So this person is very good at teaching or they're very good at exhorting others. They, maybe there's something here that we should look at. When we hear this person speak the word, perhaps in a class or a Bible study, they are often the best discerners of the man who is called into the ministry. In other words, observant people often recognize the hand of God upon the person before he even senses it. Those who best know God and most love his word often can detect who is being set apart for this work. They give insightful affirmation to the individual being called. And lastly, Lloyd-Jones added, the corporate Confirmation must come for the one called to preach. The man who is chosen by God to preach, he argued, must be observed and tested by others in the church. Only then they may be sent from the church. Romans 10, 13 to 15. Talks about those who are being sent by the church. Now, I just wanted to spend some time here, and I know we're getting close. I'm going to get done in five minutes. Um, to answer this question, can the church misjudge someone's call? How can we help to assess prospective elders? Because we are given here in 1 Timothy 5, there is a, a caution, right? Um, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. It's talking about not receiving charges against elders. Uh, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. And then he says, do not lay hands, the affirmation that I was talking about, upon anyone to hastily thereby share the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So how then 
um, can we discern not to do that, to lay hands on someone hastily? Well, the context of the passage actually gives some comfort to us. Paul's warning against sharing in other sins could easily frighten those who must appoint people to be respons- in responsible positions in the church. To counter this fear, Paul picks up on where he left off in verse 22. He says on verse 23, um, actually, no, 24. The sins of some man are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. So with that, um, Paul is saying, as far as avoiding mistakes is concerned, and thus possibly making the wrong man an elder, Timothy need not to worry, for the difficulty as to judging is not great. This is sad for Timothy's comfort. Uh, commentator says, Timothy has been called on to diagnose character, and Paul supplies him with a clue for the task and the verdicts that he, had, he passes on. Those who are obviously unfit, and those who, upon careful consideration, are found to be unfit. So he talks about those whose sins are evident and those whose sins will follow after. So those that are not as evident will become evident upon evaluation because as follows, you will see it. Let us consider each category of this candidate. Some men's sins are so obvious that no one would think of appointing them to the office. Thus, no evaluation for appointment to leadership is necessary. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. Their sins precede them. That is, they show in advance in any form of any formal examination that the man is utterly unfit for a position of a spiritual leadership. The judgment, Paul refers, it's a human assessment, not God's judgment. God is not subject here because all sins are evident to him. Right? If you think about this, God, all sins are evident before God. How come others are not so evident? He's talking about our assessment, evident to us in the church. The sins of some men are not easily seen. So, so action must be suspended until the man's character and conduct are examined. For others, their sins follow after. Paul's assured Timothy that the sins of these men will be exposed at the time of their examination. God is not the only one who can see sin. Men also can see it if they take the time to investigate. Like the first category of unfit men, these men, although their sins are more subtle, they must be refused eldership because they are not above reproach. If an unworthy man is appointed to the office after careful examination, those in charge cannot be accused of sin because they did all they humanly could to assess the candidate's character. I think that should be a comfort to us because um, God has given us instructions on how we should go about doing this. Well, what, about we, if, what if we do that? Well, if we follow God's steps and directives, we won't be held accountable for that. In exceptional cases, this commentator says, of deceptional and hypocrisy, um, he says, which only God, who is able to see the heart, could detect. Evidently, no sin can be charged against the conscientious judge, who has nevertheless been deceived. In such rare cases, Timothy will not be fellowshipping in the sins of this man. He will be pure. 
and continuing the verse here, likewise, also deeds they are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Um, the form of the second statement is similar to the first. The good works of some men are obvious before any examination is made, like also deeds that are quite good, deeds that are good are quite, um, almost there, quite evident. These men are easily identified as men who are fit for the church eldership. Some men's good works are not obvious, but upon examination, their good deeds become ap apparent and those which otherwise cannot be concealed. The good works of these men cannot be hidden, and it will become obvious that they are fit candidates for the appointment of eldership. Paul is assuring Timothy that as long as he does not act hastily in appointing elders, but carefully examines the candidates, he will find them the right man. Armed with these words of encouragement, Timothy and the church leaders are prepared to accomplish the challenging task before them. I would like to open for questions, but I know that we have gone over time. I was just close with Ephesians 4, and I copied the text there as a way of encouragement. Um, you know, right now we are in a pastoral search, right? And we want to be doing our due diligence to do what God requires of us. He has given us instructions on how to identify this call. He has given both subjective and objective ways to do that. And I think we should find comfort that above all, God is sovereign and he's concerned with his church. Ephesians 4, um, 11 and 16 says that he, Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. He does that until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. All right? So there's a comfort. God is the one behind all of this. He's in care of his church, and he equips his people to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we want to praise you and worship you for your faithfulness um, in calling men and women to the work of ministry, um, not women, not to pastoral ministry, but to missions maybe, or evangelism, or counseling, or different areas, Lord, that you have equipped them. Did that for the common good of your people in the church. Father, help us to be open um, to see um, if maybe you might be calling some of us and setting some of us apart for the work of missions. May we be faithful, Lord, to fulfill uh, your command that even though some might, might not go um, out to foreign missions, they yet need to be involved in prayer, in supporting, and encouraging. We're so thankful, Lord, for your words that guide us in all that we need. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.